Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm really delighted to have Alice Maynard, CBE and DBA, a Doctor of Business Administration, which is a long process of about four years. And deep respect for that. I've always wondered about doing it, but this lady actually did it. Um, Alice was uh, recommended by one of the other guests that we had on, Kevin Hogarth, who's been a chief people officer to a number of organizations. And Alice is doing so many things. She is not only a NED to different organizations, such as the Financial Conduct Authority, she's also chair of various organizations. Um, particularly, she's going to talk about University of York um, on the governing body there. Um, she's a mentor, she's a coach, uh, and she's an advisor. Without further ado, welcome, Alice. It's great to have you on the series. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Well, this is lovely. Let's, <laughs> let's begin by, I'm dying to know, CBE. That's no small achievement. We have MBEs, we have OBEs. MBEs, my bloody effort. OBEs, other buggers' efforts. But CBE, that that's, takes a bit of doing. And uh, anybody who's has that, I, I have uh, a lot of respect for, not respect for whatever anybody achieves, but CBE, what did you get it for? I got it for services to disabled people and their families uh, when I was chair of SCOPE. Uh -huh. So I was chair of SCOPE for about six and a half years. Um, and uh, you never know whether you're going to get these. I mean, you never know. You don't know that you are being put forward even. And you don't know that the people that put you forward don't even know what level, as it were, you're going to be um, awarded. So uh, nobody knew until I got the letter in the post, and in fact, then you're not allowed to tell either for, <laughs> until it's announced um, what it was that I, I got. But that's what, that's what I got it for. And it was, and, and I know the OBE is other buggers' efforts, but frankly, I think the CBE is countless buggers' efforts. <laughs> Because I I would say that you know I what was achieved at Scope was not just my doing. Yes, sure, I was chairing it and we did a lot, but I had a fantastic board, brilliant executive team, and endless volunteers and staff who were just making an amazing difference. Members. Um, a long-standing people with um, cerebral palsy who had been uh, supporting the organization for years and years and years and those are the people that got a CBE actually. Mm. No it's, it's very nice I had someone who uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize but actually in his case it wasn't just him there was a group of about 30 of them that got it for the work that they did and I, I think that's quite nice. Um, but um, I, I went to visit Scope and uh, see Mark Hodgkinson, who was one of your CEOs at the organization. I'm just very impressed by the work they did. 
and it takes me on to the DBA, the Doctor of Business Administration, mm-hmm. which you did at Cranfield. What was the topic? It was to do with transportation and disability, I think, was it not? That's correct. I couldn't possibly at this juncture reel off the title. <laughs> no, go on, go on. I'm dying to hear. I can't remember. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's, it's something access to heavy rail stations, um, the inclusion of disabled access, I think, yeah. or something along those lines. But it was, <laughs> so it's, 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 they're interesting, these doctorate things, because you go wanting to do something, you know, really mega and you get there and you find you do end up counting angels on a pinhead so the pinhead that I was counting angels on was um, heavy rail stations which is not things like light rail trams undergrounds it's the it's the big stuff uh, in the national rail network and it was about the the economic value of lifts versus ramps versus stairs so that's what I ended up doing. Well, that's got to be better than two other people I knew who did PhDs. One was in underwater cement mixing for offshore oil rigs. And the other one uh, who announced quietly when asked by her sergeant major on the parade ground, Miss Jenkins, you've got a doctorate. What's that in? A PhD. Sergeant major, it's in equine herpes. Oh, right. OK. Thank you, Mom. Um, you know, sometimes these these are a bit of showstoppers, but um, you know, well done on on um, the dedication to that cause, which um, reminded me when I looked at your very good LinkedIn site. There's a lovely correspondence with lots of support from people about the question not to ask a disabled person who's sitting in a wheelchair waiting on a train to be taken off it. What's the question they shouldn't ask, or the assumptions they shouldn't make? So. Uh... Actually, the question they shouldn't ask is, is somebody coming to get you? Because I don't know, and that's why I'm sitting there. The assumption they should not make is somebody will be along shortly. Because actually, I'm not even sure that they're making an assumption. I, a lot of the time, I think they are just trying to brush off the responsibility. So actually, it's kind of if they say that to me, then they don't have to say, I'll find somebody for you or has nobody come yet? Let me sort that out. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it's, I'm, I'm suspicious about the rationale. Yeah, and I would be tempted if I saw you there to go, Alice, can I help you? Can I get you off the train? Um, but that would probably be disastrous because, of course, there'd be no ramp and I'd end up sort of messing it all up and you'd probably be thrown from the wheelchair. What's I would the advice? not don't, allow don't... you to. No, I'm it sure you would wouldn't. not allow you to. It would no. give you a hernia, if nothing else. Yeah, well, I think the weight of the electric wheelchair is pretty big, isn't it? Correct. It's, um, mine is relatively light, but How it much? would still give you a hernia. It's about 113 kilos, I think. Yeah, no, that's... Some that's... Of them are... That's yes. more than my workout, I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, um, one of the things that you and I discussed at the beginning is um, people's awkwardness about when they meet someone who has uh, a disability or an impairment. Do they talk about it? Do they mention it? And we were saying, and I thought it was a really good point. Had it been a few years ago, you would have thought just, you know, back off. You know, this is none of your business. But actually... Your point you made to me, which I thought was quite helpful, 
was that you could see it then is a bit of an issue for people because they're not quite sure whether to listen to you or ask you or they're curious about what is the disability and, and could they understand about it in order to better connect with you. Um, would you just perhaps talk about what your own disability is if you wish to, you don't have to, and, and how people could best approach this kind of thing because everybody's different and some like it, others don't. Like my sister-in-law doesn't want to be kissed on the cheek, she just doesn't want you anywhere near her. Um, you know, whereas other people want to be greeted and want big Irish hugs if they're my wife. So what's what's your uh, story and what's your advice? So let me do that the other way around. So what I would say is don't make it the first thing that you ask somebody. Engage them in conversation first, please. Um, that might give you some idea of whether or not they are comfortable. And I, to be honest, a lot of people aren't. Now, I am these days, but I'm quite long in the tooth. And if you'd asked me a lot earlier, I might not have been quite that keen. If you actually, if you look at one of my LinkedIn articles, talks about uh, an experience I had at a networking event where I was listening to what the other person was saying about themselves. And then uh, the next question they asked me was, so what's your problem? Wow. To which, of course, I said, I don't have one. After which it all kind of deteriorated from there. Um, so I, the, I would I would really want to stress that you need to be careful around this question. And it is not a problem. It's not an issue. It's not a challenge. Well, it might be, but um, not, not in the way that a lot of people approach it. Uh, it does not make me brave. Um, it, so there are a number of things about asking that question that you need to be a bit cautious about. Mm. I think sometimes, as, as we were saying, it does prevent people from engaging further in conversation because they're kind of tied up in their minds. And so, just for clarity, what I've got is something called spinal muscular atrophy. It's a progressive um, genetic neurological condition. It means that I get weaker and weaker as I get older. So uh, when I started out in life um actually i toddled um, but then i kept falling over and then i walked with calipers then i had a wheelchair um, then i uh, in considerably later in my 40s i needed to start using personal assistance in order to help me do the everyday tasks um, and now i'm a pretty much a full-time personal assistance user and an electric wheelchair user. That's how I describe myself when people ask me what my access needs are. I don't tell them what my impairment is because actually that doesn't help them. Mm. People with my condition come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and there is an adult onset, which means that you might still be walking at the age of 40 or 50. Um, so, so it's, it's a question, certainly, you can ask, but you need to ask it pretty carefully. Yeah, it, it's, I'm sure, a huge minefield that people um, insult others, get it wrong themselves, and then then everything goes downhill, as you described. And would people be able to ask, you know, what are your access needs? 
Absolutely. They need to ask me what my access needs are, because if they don't, they're not going to know how to include me effectively. Mm. Um, and each disabled person's access needs may be slightly different, or mine might coincide with um, someone who uh, isn't, I mean, someone might be a support user, a personal assistance user, who's not a wheelchair user. The two don't necessarily go together. Um, and uh, it may well be that if you've got a visual impairment, you want large print. Well, if you've got a learning difficulty, you also want large print. So it, it, it's not, you can't make the assumption that because somebody's a wheelchair user, they're going to be the same as every other wheelchair user. And actually one of the big issues in the access field is that wheelchair users will sometimes make the assumption that if they give somebody a bit of advice, actually that will suit all wheelchair users. And uh, the size of the toilets on the Eurostar and the size of the wheelchair space on LNER trains uh, were originally um, uh, advised by wheelchair users um, who thought they knew and actually um, that the Eurostar access has destroyed my capacity to have a pee on a, on a Eurostar. And uh, the, the space in the LNER trains prevented my sister from sitting at the table. Right. So it, it, you don't ask a wheelchair, one wheelchair user what they advise on something. There are people called access consultants they are very important people. They are trained and qualified. They're like architects. You wouldn't ask your next door neighbor who is a plumber even um, to build your house. No, I, I think it, it, it's a good point you make. And it's a bit like I'm fascinated by the whole microbiome and what makes up the microbes of our stomach. And my microbiome and yours and mine and my wife's and my grandchildren and children, everybody's very different. Yeah. And, and and this this idea of both inclusivity, but also respecting difference and that everybody is unique and uh, and to understand each person from their perspective. What is it that old Christian saying? Treat treat your neighbor as yourself. No, treat your neighbor as your neighbor would like to be treated um, is better. Talk, talking about other people. Um, you know, you were recommended by Kevin as someone he finds very inspiring as a leader. Who, who would you call out people that you know well that you think are very inspiring leaders that you, you know, a quality about them that you admire? Perhaps, you know, CEO level maybe, but he doesn't have to be at that level, but just someone that, that is uh, running a large organisation or something. So uh, so when you asked me uh, about this uh, earlier, um, you asked me for two, and I really struggled to narrow it down. I know... Mm -hmm lots of inspiring leaders, but I picked two. So the first of those is Jim Harrer. He's the um, deputy, uh, he's the permanent secretary of, um, uh, oh, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs now, of course. Um, and uh, I picked him because I find him very, I used to be on the HMRC board um, and I found him really even-handed, calm in the face of disruptive, or possibly even what I might describe as seismic events, 
Um, prepared to speak truth to power, which I think is really important. And, and just a, a really wise, um, measured man. And the other person I picked is someone called Bernadette Conroy, who is social housing regulator and also one of my colleagues on the Financial Conduct Authority Board. Um, and I picked her because she is an amazingly strategic systems thinker. She's always well prepared for meetings um, and she's always willing to speak her mind, but she does that really constructively. Fantastic. Well, uh, no, uh, it, it's lovely when you come across so many in your time. And, and I think it's a great skill to look for the good in others. It's very easy for us to criticize others. And I was just reading a autobiography by someone and they'll remain nameless. It's uh, unfair because I'm just about what I'm curious about was that, that they did get a number of people that they sang their praises, but they laced into a whole range of other people who were all famous public figures. Uh, politicians and other people in their profession and I thought wow you know what's this all about um, so very, very interesting it, it's very telling about the person and their and their ego but um, one of the things that people say about you is is um, your humility and your humanity but yet at the same time that lovely drive that you have what experiences have shaped your leadership as others experience you today, Alice? So I think that um, I, I kind of, I want to pick out three things probably. Um, uh, one is um, my school experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that is largely responsible for my, um, what actually some people would view as my almost obsessive drive. Um, so as teenage girls, so I went to a, a special boarding school for girls, disabled girls. I think we were probably handicapped girls in those days, actually. Um, we were told um, that we would have to be significantly better than everybody else in order to justify our existence. Well, it wasn't entirely worded in that way, but that was definitely the message that came across. You are not worthy unless you really excel um, and I spent a lot of my young adult life desperately trying to do that. Um, and it wasn't until I got my second job and my boss in that second job took a completely different approach and kind of, without saying, just gave me my value back, if you like, um, because we went to Spain together uh, in my early days in that job to launch a product. Um, and he said to me, is there any reason why you couldn't go to Spain? Uh, I said, uh, no, thinking I have no idea, but never mind, let's just say no. <laughs> um, I was up for risk in those days, I can tell you. Um, uh, and uh, when I got there, the bathroom was not accessible. So we, we'd, my um, people had organized an accessible room for me. It wasn't. Um, and I, uh, I couldn't cope with the bathroom. And I was sitting there thinking, heck, what do I do? Anyway, I got hold of the boss and I said, look, this is really difficult, but my, my bathroom's not accessible. So he came and had a look. And uh, he said, mine's much bigger than this. So uh, he uh, took me through to his room 
And yes, indeed, the bathroom would have been fantastic, except I couldn't get through the door. So what he did was he picked the door up off its hinges and propped it up beside the doorway, which gave me the extra couple of centimetres that I needed to get my wheelchair through. So we just swapped rooms. And, uh, I, and I found that uh, actually quite inspiring. And when I later came across something called the social model of disability, which essentially says that people are disabled not by their impairment or their condition, but by the barriers that exist in society, like physical barriers or attitudinal barriers, um, that really was the standout example of social model action in progress um, for me. Uh, and it laid the foundations of my thinking about removing those barriers for whoever, not just for disabled people, but removing barriers in our workplaces so that people can do their best work. And so then my, my uh my second thing about what a good non-executive director um is uh and the risks that you need to take to retain your integrity uh came when i was recruited to the board of the national information forum um which was a non-profit organization which researched and produced accessible information it doesn't exist anymore so I can happily talk about it. Um, and it was a founder-led organisation and the chair of the organisation was the husband of the founder. So it was very much a kind of um, incestuous affair, I think I would call it. Um, and they treated the board like a bit of, like a puppet. And I was aware even in those days, and I don't really know where that came from, that, um, that the board owned the strategy and I really butted heads with the chair and the founder as the rest of the board just looked on and they kind of agreed with me in private, but not, not strongly enough to speak out. Uh, and then I found that when the next AGM came along, I was summarily ousted. Um, so that was what the price that I paid for trying to do my job effectively. Mm. And it taught me something about the backbone that non-executive directors need in order to do their jobs properly. And then the other thing that I is, is kind of integral to my leadership, I suppose, is that interest in continuous improvement at board level and in board development. And that arose out of my experiences at Scope because I really wanted to help to create the best performing board that I could. Um, the board previously had had a lot of problems and caused a lot of problems with the executive. Um, and I wanted a really productive and solid relationship with our executive. And that led me to work on a board development plan and a life cycle diagram for trustees and to bring in board evaluation, which was extremely unusual in the sector. And we pretty much flew solo developing the framework. And, and we learned a lot as we went along about what good questions were. People needed to know what good looked like. If you said, are we doing this well? People need to know what that means. And also, if you're gonna ask a load of questions, you really wanna know what you're gonna do with the answers. 
Otherwise, you're gathering data that people are making an effort to give you, and then you're just idly sitting by. Um, and I eventually got an external board evaluation company in from the commercial sector because I wanted to go, okay, so we think we're doing okay in the sector, but how do we compare with, uh, with the private sector? Now, one of the things that was being bandied about a lot in those days was how much the nonprofit sector needed the private sector to help it have good governance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was not the outcome of our external board evaluation. They were quite shocked by how good our board meetings and our board governance was. Um, so that was really, I found that really encouraging. Um, and I still, even if I'm, you know, when I'm not chairing boards, I will still try to inculcate that, um, that value of continuous improvement and encourage uh, and support any efforts by chairs and other non-execs to, uh, to promote that. Fantastic. Well, what great stories. And I'm particularly taken by the uh, boss who, who swapped rooms and took the door off the hinges. Um, just uh, a real example. And I, like you, work with a number of CEOs and exec teams. I'm about to go off and with an exec team in America for their offsite. Um, and, and time and again, I also get involved with between the exec team and the board um, where the two sides are not understanding each other. They don't understand each other's terms or what their job spec or what their satisfaction and success criteria are on a page. And it, it, it does cause a lot of drama. So I think you're desperately needed your skills there. There's been a number of highs in your life and a number of lows, I'm sure, Alice, but I am often curious what people have learned from their darkest moments and, and the lesson that's then helped them in the future. What about you? So I think probably my, a few dark moments as you can probably imagine but I think my darkest moment was when I was working uh, in a company as opposed to consulting and I brought a grievance against my manager because I was I couldn't bear any longer the level of bullying and discrimination I was being subjected to um, I, I it, there was definitely disability discrimination in there um, and I, I found that a really difficult process. And actually when people, because I work in the equality and inclusion field, people often talk to me about um, their experiences of discrimination and harassment, and they are angry and they want to bring grievances or whatever, take people to tribunal. And I always, I, I never advise them not to but I always try to highlight for them how difficult that process is because it is, it's stressful, uh, it can be emotionally destructive and um, it, it's just a very hard process to go through. I was not successful in my grievance and one of the reasons for that was because a very old-fashioned um, retired HR manager was 
um, put in charge of the investigation. And he didn't even know what an impairment was. Um, so he had no understanding of, of disability discrimination. It hadn't existed when he was um, working. Gender discrimination had existed. Um, there'd been a, a racial equality act, but nothing else. And one of the things that that taught me that experience was that I should really, if I'm finding things difficult, I, and I'm not saying everybody else, but I should cut my losses rather than try and still do a good job in a job that is actually destroying my mental health and uh, if affecting my self-esteem. So I couldn't actually, after that, apply for another job for a couple of years because I just didn't have what it took. Wow. Well, <laughs> well firstly, I, I can't imagine how tough it is. Um, secondly, I've come across a number of people who've had to have difficult cases, tribunals, whatever it is, divorce cases, and, and it's hugely emotionally charged. And it reminds me about a bit of advice somebody gave me about when you're working for a white collar psychopath. And I worked for one in the military, actually, um, who became very famous. Um, and some of the senior levels in different organizations do seem to attract the white collar psychopaths who love the power and the status. And they they do enjoy gaslighting and bullying people. And one bit of fine advice I got is you won't be able to change them. So just get out of there because um, they're going to carry on being a psychopath. They'll they'll pick another victim and they'll they'll taunt them and pull the wings off that little fly or whatever it might be that they really enjoy or using a, uh, a magnifying glass to burn its feet or whatever it might be and in the way that sort of cruel children do. And, and that you, a bit like you said, just cut your losses if it's destroying your mental health because... The problem is that when you then go through the discrimination and the tribunal and uh, the grievance, you're taken through it even more and, and everything's highlighted on you and they often see you as the difficult one. Now, as you said yourself, I wouldn't put people off um, doing the right thing, but sometimes the system doesn't serve you well and you are, like, for example, I... I, I lost a huge amount of money, mainly what I'd inherited from my late mother who died. Not an awful lot of money, but I'd saved up a lot. And I got defrauded by some criminal fraudsters on property. And um, we tried to make it work for about 10 years, but it was just breaking us. In fact, it probably killed my first marriage, I think, looking back. Uh, eventually, there was a court case with about 26 people who'd been defrauded by this criminal woman who did go to jail. Um, but we never got our money back and it just put us through hell for another three years. We helped the police and we got her in jail, which was in some ways justice done, but we never got our money back. And she's probably scrawled it away somewhere, waiting to come out of jail and go and live off the uh, the earnings of, of her, her crime. Um, so it doesn't mean you don't do anything about it, but I just think as you wisely advise people, just be aware Everything in life is possible. Prepare to pay the price and live with the consequences. But are you prepared to pay that price? And are the consequences worth it? Sorry, you got me going on one there, but as you can see, it, it 
resonated with people. Any further thoughts before we move yeah, on? Yeah, that, that consequences thing I think is really important. You kind of almost have to imagine yourself in, at the other side of it and work out what you're going to get and is it really worth it and what might not happen that you imagine is going to happen. So what happens if the person doesn't go to jail or you don't get your money back or you don't get satisfaction or the tribunal doesn't agree with you? What then and how is that going to leave you? I, I, I'm a, I've done quite a bit of NLP in relation to my coaching. And uh, one of the things when I was very uh, young manager, I went on one of the first NLP courses in the UK um, and qualified as a practitioner then. Well, was, I, it, was, it, was it with Bandler and McKenna? Because I did one of those. No, courses. it was actually with something called the UK Training uh, Company. Um, okay. and, uh, but they were trained by, by Bandler and Grinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and I just remember one of the things that they talked about in relation to food and relationship with food was before you eat a piece of chocolate cake, think about how you're going to feel when you've eaten that piece of chocolate cake, and then that will help you decide whether you want it or not, where people just ate for eating's sake. And I, I quite often apply that piece of advice to all sorts of things. You know, what's this going to be like when I'm at the other side of it? And actually, is that what I really want? Yeah, yeah. I, I think very, very wise lessons learned from personal experience. Um, a bit more experience I'd love to hear from you. And the whole point of this podcast is to share your wisdom and experience anyway, as you, as you know, Alice. Um, taking yourself back to Alice Maynard, aged 16 to 18. What bit of advice would you give to Alice then from the age you are now, if you'd gone back in your DeLorean, back to the future, and you'd go, Alice, don't worry about this, but this is really important? What would you say to your young self? I think that's kind of um, relates to what I was saying about my school experience and um, being told that we had to be uh, significantly better than everybody else. Uh, and I think the advice would be, actually, that's not true. You are enough. You are enough. And if you strike out and you take risks at work or in your life in general, what's the worst thing that can happen? And if it happens, what's so bad about that? And just you are enough. You can do it. I wish somebody had actually told me that instead of me spending, actually, I, I, I had a, uh, a kind of physical breakdown when I was in my early 30s, well, or late 20s, I think it was. Um, not, not long and not bad, but as a result of just working ridiculously hard in order to make up for being me. So I'm enough. Yeah, uh, it's so interesting you mentioned that. I'm just going to look on my Audible. Um, but the, there's one of the um, uh, crucial... No, no, it's not crucial conversations. One of the books I've been listening to recently um, is this uh, this point. Yeah, it, it was... Um, 
about the fact that we're about character. It's about character. That was what it was. Um, just trying to find the book, The Road to Character by David Brooks. I just finished reading it, and and that how in many ways in the last number of years we've become more self-focused me 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 and i want to be a superstar and uh, social media and look at me and rather than someone's character which will stand the test of time and integrity and humility and humanity and and courage and things like this that it's all what's in it for me and and i i i do think that your experience there that you didn't feel you were enough unless you were exceeding everybody else and and i look back at and i mentioned it to you when we were chatting just before as we were warming up that my teacher told me i was thick and i was going to be a dustman because i was she didn't know she just thought i was not trying hard enough because i couldn't read properly and my spelling was awful and and my maths was terrible um that that she said i was going to be a dustman because i was thick uh, and that was really going to be my life story and i've been since trying to prove her wrong uh it's being a visiting professor at the business school and things like this but it's all trying to prove to somebody and and it does it does catch up with you because you, you you break yourself as you were saying um thank you for that the, the, the next one we're going to go around a little the inspiring leadership compass the work that lee my wife did and i sort of supported her in it about you know what makes high performing leaders and teams and there's so many, there's many thousands of leadership models and you've studied many of them, Alice, I'm sure, written about them, designed your own probably. But just if, if you humor me and follow this one around, um, moral question, what did you learn when you let your own values slip? I'm always interested with people. So uh, I think the standout example of that for me was um, when I met my um, husband, uh, ex-husband now, uh, and we were out shopping. We weren't married by then. We were out shopping. It was early in our relationship, uh, and we went to one of these big out-of-town places where we had the car, and uh, we loaded up a trolley, and when we got back to the car, instead of unloading the trolley, my husband pushed it up my wheel the wheelchair ramp for the the wheelchair into the car and uh, and I said we can't take that that's theft and he said no no and I said well he said it's fine so I said no it's not and I don't want to take it and he said well okay I'll promise you I'll take it back when I when I go back and I said, okay, naively. And later he told me that he'd actually dumped it in a moment of candor, which was quite rare. Um, he told me he'd dumped it. That was probably quite a bit later. I think it was a month to six weeks later. And I was absolutely horrified. And at that juncture, I should have said, do you know what? This is not the right relationship for me to be in. Instead, I carried on in that relationship. I eventually married him. And of course, it didn't work. It doesn't mm. work. Mm. Yeah, little small, small things. I, I, I was um, told by the uh, chief people officer of ASDA um, 
whose name will come to me in a minute. Um, but she talked about TNT, tiny noticeable things. Uh, and it's these tiny noticeable things that make all the difference. It's the little things. It's how you behave in small things is how you behave in big things. Yeah. And um, I'm looking forward to getting Admiral Bill McRaven, uh, Navy SEAL commander, on. And he talks a story you may have seen about first make your bed. So you begin the day, you make your own bed. Because at the end of the day, even if you've had a bad day, when you come back to your room, you have a bed that's been making, that has been made, that you made. And it's mm. the first thing of the day that you've done, that discipline of making your bed. And I know many who don't bother and the bedroom is a, a shambles and there's no pride in what you look after. So that's that's a, a really powerful story I will always remember. Thank you. PQ, uh, meaning and purpose. Um, some people talked about it being spiritual intelligence quotient, but if we call it purpose and meaning quotient, what, what gives your life meaning and purpose, Alice? Uh, knowing that I make a difference mm. um, or I can make a difference to improve the life of others. And, and that is generally through work. It could be through other things, but for me, it's really through work. Mm. And I, I, uh, I say that, um, you know, my, my purpose in life is to make a difference to society through the effective organisation of organisations, because that's what I'm good at. Occasionally, people suggest that I perhaps ought to, I don't know what you do, apply to be a people's peer in the House of Lords or whatever. I, I am not a legislator. I would not wish to be a legislator. It's not what I do. I sort organisations out. That's what I'm good at. Uh, and you'll never be out of work. <laughs> We've got a lot of organisations that need sorting out. Next one, Alice, health quotient. What would be your top tip on uh, how you manage your physical health and your mental health? A uh, tip on each. So certainly um, uh, the physical health. I, wherever you read this elsewhere, there's always exercise in it. Um, I was reading something, I think it was in the FT over the weekend, and there was there was stuff about, um, you know, taking a run or, or whatever. And, and I'm always going, yes, but I can't do that. So my, my thing for me is ensuring I've got good diet um, and I'm hydrated and that I have the right amount of sleep when I can get it and I have a great belief in the an hour before midnight is worth two afterwards or however many afterwards I can never remember the end of the thing um I used to swim but that's not possible at the moment I'm hoping to go back to it but it's not possible at the moment so that's certainly for my physical health that's important for my mental health that's also important because if you're physically kind of better off your mental health is better but I sing for my mental health. So I belong to a barbershop chorus and, uh, and that's really important to me. It's partly the, um, the community of that chorus, but it's partly the actual act of singing is good for your mental health. Yeah, uh, and what is the name of your barbershop quartet? Junction 14. And, and do you, do, can people book you? 
Yes, they can book us. Please <laughs> <free>. <laughs> well, that's great. Look, I love it. And I always I always enjoy listening to Bioshock Quartets. Um, one with, with your mentoring and coaching hat on is EQ, which, as you know, and we were talking about this, that we've come across some particularly high IQ individuals who have seriously underdeveloped amounts of EQ. Um, you can point them out in many walks of life. Um, but how do you listen well to others, Alice? It's one of the key skills. I, if I'm focused on listening to someone, then I listen well. Um, and I'm actually quite good at playing back to people what it is that I've heard generally speaking, using their terminology. I think that's one of the important things because one of the things we do in kind of common listening, if I can put it that way, the sort of everyday listening, is, um, is actually interpreting what somebody's saying within our own framework. And although we often have to do that, it, it's not a great idea. So if you want to listen well, then you need to think what is they, their framework from which they are speaking um, and listen with that. So if you don't understand one of the words they're using, or if you think you might be misinterpreting what they actually mean by it, then ask. Yeah. You know, you use, the, you use this word, what does that actually mean for you? So that's really important. Um, and sometimes when I'm, uh, when my mind's on something else or I'm invested in what I'm doing or I'm reading my email at the same time as doing something else, uh, then I may not be such a good listener. And that's an understatement. I'm a rubbish listener at that point. Um, but sometimes when I'm listening to people, I may be listening so closely to the story, the content of what they're saying that actually I might miss what is happening for them as a person emotionally or whatever. So one of the things I try to do is keep that kind of dual listening thing and not get completely involved in the kind of a, oh yes, that sounds really, etc. Yeah, no, it, it's very interesting. Over my shoulder, there's a little book called How to Listen by Oscar Trimboli, who I've got coming on the podcast from Australia. In fact, we've had the recording. It's not yet been uh, released, but fascinating man, a really good coach. Um, but he spent his, his life's work is about helping people be better listeners. And he talks about five levels of listening. Firstly, listening to yourself. There's all that inner dialogue going on. Then you're listening to the content, the stories, as you say, of, of what they have. Listening to the context, listening to the unsaid, what they haven't said or what's uh -huh. missing or what you're intuitively picking up, but they haven't said it. And then listening for meaning. And, and, and it, is, it is something we just in schools and everywhere else, certainly universities, goodness me, it's not even given any priority. Talking, speaking, public speaking, all that kind of projecting yourself, writing your you know, documents, getting your point across, but not listening. Um, the next one is CQ, cultural intelligence, cognitive, cultural, collective intelligence. It's a sort of mix. And, and how do you, particularly someone who's so knowledgeable about exclusion and inclusion, 
and diversity. Um, how do you get on with people who are very different from you, Alice? What's so, your tip? I think it's about, for me, it's about um, being open is really important. So uh, we automatically start making judgments the moment we see people. We cannot help doing that. That is part of the human condition. So unless you're superhuman, you're not going to stop doing that. But being aware of that is really vital. So what am I assuming about this person uh, that actually may or may not be accurate? Um, but there's also, I think, a balance to be struck between being curious and uh, asking questions so that you can actually understand them better and being alert to areas that might be sensitive. And it kind of harks back to the conversation that we were having about um, me being a wheelchair user and what my condition is and whether that's okay to ask and all that stuff. Um, and I like working with people who are different from me because I get fresh insights and we can generate much more innovative solutions to whatever we're working on because we are looking at things from different perspectives. Um, and those don't have to be the, the, the commonly understood diversity characteristics. It could be just that we were brought up in different places or um, or we have different interests or it's about find the difference as well as find the similarity in many ways mm. um, and I'm sure that many a time I screw up with somebody and I offend them or whatever I would like them to tell me so that I can avoid doing it again nicely preferably um, but uh, in any event I hope they forgive me because I think we lack forgiveness these days uh, very much so and holding grievances um the last three let's do a quick fire um just because in the time i want to make sure we do cover them because i think they'll all be interesting resilience um if there was a tip you'd give people about picking themselves up in times of adversity you more than any have uh, got many stories but what would be your top tip to people so i think uh make sure you've got the support of other people um and other people who are going to be with you in your crisis or whatever it is, not just sympathize or try and give you advice, um, but actually kind of just live alongside you with it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I would say is understand what you can learn from it. Um, to what extent did you contribute to this, if at all? Uh, and and actually perhaps you can do something different next time yeah for me that's, that's really important no i love that learning in action what i learn what am i going to do differently hmm. um brand uh what have you learned from 360 feedback i imagine you you are good at doing that with boards and giving them 360 feedback but what have you learned um, uh, i've learned that people don't like giving it really yeah i particularly in the third sector where many people are volunteers and they don't feel that it's okay to do it um, and and many people prefer being what they think is kind but this is a 
you need to be not cruel, but you need to be firm to be kind, I think, a lot of the time. And I prefer being told what I can change so that I can improve. Uh, and the best piece of feedback I've ever been given was from one of my team when I worked in the software industry. He told me that I didn't praise people enough and it really took me aback. But actually when I reflected on it, I thought, well, actually I'm pretty task orientated. So I probably don't think about stopping and saying, fantastic job guys, that was really good. And I've always remembered that and I'm really grateful to him for telling me that. Yeah, good on him. And particularly when we're so driven uh, to achieve things that we think, well, just get on and do it. It's your job, you know. Absolutely. Um, legacy. Um, what What would be your advice to help someone find their legacy in their lifetime, not when they're dead? I would say write yourself a personal mission statement. And there are hundreds of examples on the Internet if you don't know where to start. Uh, they're all many of them are different many of them are radically different so you just have to find your own way but I've had one since that time when I took the grievance um, against my manager and I had such a ghastly time I had a couple of years of therapy after that and out of that came my personal mission statement and that has really helped me to understand my legacy fantastic um, you come across toxic leaders. Um, that was your manager was one of them. Um, how do you turn around a toxic team? What would be your top tip from experience? Whether it's an individual or the whole team's gone toxic, what do you do? So my top tip would be to um, try to identify whether there is um, an individual in that team that's causing the problem, and. It may be that they're not in the right job. So this is where conversations and listening well become really, really important because you've got to find out what's wrong before you can fix it. And making assumptions about what's wrong is a really bad idea. And sometimes an individual in a team might need permission to go. And sometimes they need permission to be themselves and ask for what they need um, because actually they just aren't able to do their best job in that situation for various reasons. So it may be that they become the best possible member in the team once they are able to express themselves effectively. That's really good. I like that. Um, penultimate question is um, a favourite book, uh, Alice, and I'm sure you've read many, but if, if there's a book that you'd recommend to people on leadership that you've uh, enjoyed, and that you think others listening around the world would enjoy too. What is it? So a lot of the leadership books annoy me because they all say different things about being a leader. And I just kind of get, yes, but you can be a leader at all sorts of levels and in different ways. And that's not, you know, this is unhelpful. But so what I really liked um, was when I was doing my MBA, I read Richard Norman's Service Management. So this was a long time ago. But it opened my eyes to something that he calls, I think, the customer employee circle. Sorry, Richard, if I've got that wrong. Um, and that employees can't give great customer service if the company's not giving them great customer service too. So there's this kind of um, Janus almost of looking outwards and looking inwards um, as, a, as a leader. And I really, that book really echoed um, for me and 
resonated with me and I've never forgotten it. Mm, so true. And I, I remember those who've worked uh, with when Richard Branson is at his best, um, particularly in his airlines, that he he his focus was on making the experience of the employees so good that they then looked after the staff on the aeroplane so well because they were being looked after so well. Now, in all organizations, they have highs and lows, but he did get that right. Okay, um, wonderful. So we're now going to do the two-minute top tips, Alice. Um, if you'd be kind enough just to introduce yourself personally, um, what uh, what you do, what you've done, um, just a little sort of thumbnail, and then what your top leadership tip is, we'll end at that stage. So I'm Alice Maynard. I am a serial non-executive director, really, these days. But I also run a small company um, working in coaching and business advice called Future Inclusion. And I've been running that now for ooh, over 20 years. Um, and uh, I am currently on the Financial Conduct Authority board as a non-executive uh, on a small, very small uh, local charity called the Cross and Stables Charity um, and I am the Chair of Council of York University. Sorry, I beg your pardon, I'm not allowed to say that because that's the Canadian one. Um, it's the University of York, <laughs> but I think we were there first. That's we, were. we were. Um, so uh, I, my top leadership tip is to understand your strengths and your development areas as a leader and never to be reluctant to ask for advice or help, no matter how stupid or weak that may feel. And then when you've had that advice, pay it forward. Fantastic. Well, uh, Alice Maynard, CBE, uh, DBA, thank you very much for being on Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You've really made me think, and I'm sure those organizations that work with you get great value from the experience that you bring and the radical candor that you add so thank you i've really enjoyed today thank you so have i thank you for listening we hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives my guests and i provide this service to you for free all we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know so they also benefit too please subscribe rate and review us on your podcast platform we value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website jonathanperks.com where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter you can also follow us on linkedin instagram twitter and facebook I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.